Today's reading is from Isaiah 55, and it can be found on page 743 in the Pew Bible. Come, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendour. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than, you, than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. We, um, if you've been around the last couple of Sundays, you'll know that we are, in these first three weeks of the new year, reading just one chapter of the Old Testament. Uh, Elaine uh, read it all for us this morning. It is Isaiah chapter 55, and I think it would help me, and I hope help you, if you would have that open on your knee. So in the Church Bibles, it's page 743, and we are really going to focus on the last two verses this morning. Um, but to help us uh, uh, get our bearings, uh, we will um, look back to the beginning, and uh, let me lead us in a prayer. Dear God, thank you for your servant, Isaiah, all those centuries ago, for his courage and for his faithfulness. And because we know that your Holy Spirit led him into these great truths, 
we ask now for that same Spirit's help as we turn to this ancient word that it may come alive in our hands through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Amen. Now David's already uh, referred to something we were thinking about last week, which is the idea that God's word not only informs, that is it tells us things we wouldn't otherwise know about God, about ourselves, about our world, about uh, spiritual realities, about the future. And that's our theme this morning, what does the future hold? It also performs, that is, when God speaks, he doesn't just kind of sort of talk randomly, he doesn't sort of mutter to himself, Um, he speaks with a purpose and that his word achieves the purpose for which he had that word in mind. And I left you last week with the question, then what is the purpose of this word? And I'm sure you've spent all week pondering that question. Um, It's an interesting one because... At first sight, the answer appears very simple and straightforward. It is an invitation. Again, we were reminded of that to begin with this morning. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Come to the waters. Come, buy, and eat. It is an invitation from God to all who will come to him. It is a gracious invitation, and it's followed up by the prophet's exhortation. So if you look down to verse 6, this is where we were last week, the prophet gives four imperatives, four things that the hearer should do. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways. Let them turn to the Lord. Seek, call, forsake, turn. Four things to do. And uh, this purpose then is obviously to do with salvation. Salvation is a great theme of the prophet Isaiah. The salvation that is in mind here, and if you've got your little outline, you'll see that it's uh, there at the top. The salvation that is in mind here consists, first of all, of mercy and forgiveness. If you look down to verse 7, the promise is that he, that is the Lord, will have mercy and that he will freely pardon. Mercy and forgiveness instead of in place of judgment and condemnation. Isaiah's two big themes are judgment on the people's sin, the promise of God's marvellous salvation. Now that aspect of salvation is the one I imagine, if I asked you what is salvation about, most of us would immediately be able to say something about. It is the 
It is the great good news of what we are rescued from. Yes, so to be saved means to be rescued. It is what we're rescued from. It is all a work of God's grace. The uh, prophet Ezekiel, writing at the time of the exile that Isaiah anticipates, speaks of God in these terms. God does not desire the death of a sinner, but rather that he turn from his wickedness and live. So this is the God who saves. This is the God of all grace. And Isaiah, in speaking of this theme, gives a portrait not only of the gracious intent of God, but of his promised coming Saviour, a servant who will take upon himself the punishment that sinners deserve. And so we find in the chapters just before this a marvellous series of portraits fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. It was Jesus himself who picks up the language of Isaiah 55, when he speaks of himself as being the bread of life and invites us to feed on him. Now, friends, this is tremendous good news. It is why, and I think we did this last week, we reminded ourselves that when we think of what day it is, it's not simply Sunday, because today is the day of salvation. And what time it is, it's not simply 10.30, it is the time of God's favour. Now you see, that is very good news, isn't it? So know that. God's word informs us that it is now the time of his favour, that today is the day of salvation. And God's word draws us to that gracious invitation that we might be amongst those who seek, who call, who turn, having forsaken our sin. Now what I want to say this morning is that marvellous as all that is, believe it or not, there is even more to God's salvation than that. For Isaiah speaks not only of what we are saved from, he speaks of what we are saved for. It's very important to know what we're rescued from, but it's also very important to know what we're rescued for. And that is our great theme this morning. And the last two verses of this uh, magnificent chapter look ahead and speak of the future, of the distant future, as Isaiah is writing, he is writing in the 8th century before the coming of Christ. But as a true prophet, Isaiah is enabled by God the Holy Spirit both to address his own time and the people of that day and to look forward and to speak of future things. In time past, people used to speak of authentic prophecy, both forth 
that is speaking a word of the Lord today at the time of the prophet and foretelling, speaking a word that looks ahead. As an authentic prophet, and in Isaiah's day, as in today's day, there were many false prophets. But as an authentic prophet, he is able to do that. Now, friends, if we are going to understand what Isaiah is saying, we need to go back to his day first before we come to ours. Now, on the screen here, there's a little diagram which we did two weeks ago and which I hope is going to appear any moment. Now, Nigel, where are you? Which button? There are five buttons on here. And again? Right, okay, there we are, very good. Right, so this little diagram, there is the text that is on your knee in front of you. If we're going to read that text properly, we need to think about its context. That is the time in which it was written. What did it mean when Isaiah spoke these words? We need to go back there before coming forward to now. Now that is true of any Bible study. If you were doing a New Testament letter, you would need to do exactly that. Pathfinders this morning are learning about Ephesus in the first century and how the apostle wrote to them and then they're going to come forward to think what does that mean today when it's an Old Testament passage there's one more thing you need to do you need to bring the passage through the fulfillment that God has achieved in Jesus and if we're going to understand the passage we need to do that now on your little notes I've left the uh, lines blank so you can draw them in if you wish. If we don't do that, and the temptation is not to because we're, well, it may be because we're lazy, it may be because we're impatient, the temptation is to jump straight from the text to us now. Now, you might know the story of the very earnest young Christian who went off to university um, and was determined to please God in uh, everything he did. He got to university, he got sorted out, he uh, set on his uh, daily Bible readings, uh, he went to the uh, Christian Union, and uh, he, he, he met a delightful girl there, a, a, a girl whose name was Joy, and, um, but he wasn't at all sure, really, uh, what he should do. So he made this a sort of a matter of prayer, uh, he'd never had a girlfriend and was uh, wondering really whether this was the right time. Anyway, you can imagine his enormous uh, uh, interest when uh, his daily reading said, you will go out with joy. <laughs> that was the, clearly the answer to his prayers. Right, on that note, I will uh, kill the diagram. How do I switch this off, Nigel? There we are, marvellous. So, there we are, yes, so um, you shall go out with joy. We want to understand what that means, and the way to understand it is to go back to Isaiah's time first. Isaiah 
was writing in the 8th century before Christ. And he had a somber message to give. The northern kingdom, having rebelled against God, met its end at the hands of the Assyrians. And Isaiah, based in Jerusalem, had to warn the people that if they in Judah continued to rebel against God, they too would be destroyed. He preached for 40 years. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are an account of that preaching. What happens from chapter 40 onwards is that Isaiah, as it were, kind of leaps forward 200 years. He anticipates that that terrible destruction has happened. We call it the exile because under the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, Jerusalem was besieged, the temple destroyed, and the people taken into Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And Isaiah addresses the people in exile. You remember the psalm speaks about sitting down by the waters of Babylon in tears, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. They had lost their city, they had lost their temple, they had lost their king, they were in captivity. In fact, so bad was it that what was needed was a new exodus. Everything that had been promised, everything that had been achieved after Moses with Joshua and the conquering of the land and the establishing of the monarchy, everything had gone. And of course the big question was why? I, you know, had, had God sort of taken his eye off the ball? Had he grown weak and feeble? Perhaps he'd forgotten his promises or was no longer capable of fulfilling them. Perhaps when faced with the might of the Babylonians, God had been proved weak. Well, Isaiah and the other prophets' analysis says that none of those is the reason. That the reason is, just as Moses had warned, that the people's continual rebellion and refusal to listen had led to this terrible outcome. That is the context into which Isaiah is speaking. So when he says, you will go out in joy, this is the end of the exile. This is returning to the land. You will be led forth in peace. It is a marvellous prospect. The end of exile and restoration to the land and to the city Jerusalem. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you'll know that in due course that did in fact happen after a period that the prophet Jeremiah had predicted would last 70 years. They did return to the land Nehemiah and Ezra tell of the rebuilding of the temple and of the city. 
and of Ezra's great work to attempt to rebuild the spiritual heart of the people. But although they returned to the land, the tragedy was they never really returned to the Lord. The prophets fell silent. The second temple was destroyed. Antiochus Epiphanes raised his standard in that temple, just as later on uh, Caligula was to attempt to do. The people were subjugated first by the Greeks and then the Romans. And so we come to John the Baptist's appearance at the beginning of the New Testament, who announces the coming of a new king. And at last, the kingdom of God. That is what it meant for them. The question is, what does it mean for us? Now, on our notes, I've given you two little New Testament passages. It's very interesting that the New Testament writers pick up the very language that Isaiah speaks. Let me read to you from the Apostle Paul, writing to Gentile believers in the great city of Philippi. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Did you pick up the language of joy and the language of peace? Or again, the Apostle Peter writing to those who have been scattered away from their own homes at a time of persecution. Believers are exhorted by Peter in this language. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade, unlike an earthly city. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Well, we could multiply examples. What the New Testament writers do, sometimes like Peter with an explicit application to the idea of being in exile, is to help us understand how to apply an Old Testament scripture. That is, we understand that this joy and this peace, this being led out, this restoration to the land is to do with God's great promises fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, who came once to bring salvation and who will come again to establish God's kingdom forever. That is sometimes called a New Testament control 
In other words, we let the New Testament writers help us to understand, control how we read and learn from and apply the Old Testament scriptures. Joy and peace. What else does Isaiah speak of the future in terms of? Let's look down. Verse 12. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Have a look at verse 13. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. Now that is speaking of fruitfulness on the one hand, but it's also speaking of something quite remarkable. It's as if Eden is being restored with no more weeds and no more thorns. It is a glorious picture of a renewed earth. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. And if you were to read on beyond this chapter, into the closing chapters of Isaiah, you would hear him speak of a new heaven and a new earth in language that is picked up in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And those who are regulars here will know that we had the treat of going through this material uh, last autumn. For John is enabled to see into the future, and he writes, picking up Isaiah's language, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, I hardly need to say, do I, that that goes way beyond anything Nehemiah and Ezra managed to achieve. It goes way beyond anything that they discovered when they returned to the land. No, this is the far distant future. This is heaven. This is a new Jerusalem, not the disputed piece of real estate in what we arrogantly call the Middle East, because of course England's the centre of the world, isn't it, with Greenwich and everything. This is the new Jerusalem. And there, along with that crowd that John envisages as being a multitude so great that no man can number, we will find those who are ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles, the slave and the free, male and female, old and young, all gathered around the throne. Listen to what the Lord said to John. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, that is the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. 
To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Does that ring a bell? Isn't that where we began? Isn't that interesting? It is the Isaiah 55 invitation, isn't it? Come to me, all you who are thirsty. And so we find this promise to the thirsty reprised there in the new heaven and the new earth. It is the fulfillment of God's gracious invitation. Now, friends, this future is for everyone, whatever their background, for every people and culture and language and nation who respond by faith to God's gracious invitation. And the blessing of it, the promise of it, extends to all creation. Did you notice that? Come back to Isaiah 55. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains and hills will begin to sing. And not only that, the trees will begin to applaud as they wave their branches. Now, this is prophetic oracle, all right? You understand the imagery. But it's marvellous imagery, isn't it? Here is a picture of all creation renewed, of Eden restored, of the curse lifted. No more crying, no more mourning, no more death, no more pain, no more injustice, no more oppression, no more wickedness, no more destruction. Friends, this is what we are saved for. I don't know whether you're good at New Year's resolutions, or perhaps by now you have abandoned those you made a couple of weeks ago. Here's one that might be worth maintaining. To keep clearly in mind, not only what we are saved from, we must keep that clearly in mind, but also to keep clearly in mind what we are saved for. Would that not be a marvellously helpful New Year resolution? Especially when we are surrounded by so much fear and insecurity. While we are witnessing so much wanton cruelty and destruction. When we are threatened by such terrible possibilities with our political leaders speaking openly of the possibility of a new world war in the next several years. What we are saved for needs to be clearly in our minds. And Isaiah speaks powerfully of it in language that the New Testament picks up and applies to our hope of heaven. How do we know all this? How can you know what the future holds? Two weeks ago I waved the, um, the Economist's Guide to 2024. Um, brilliant as the Economist journalists are, they haven't the faintest idea. They don't know any more than you and I know. Except, except you might not know specifics 
You don't know who will win an American election or a British election. But you do know the big picture. And the big picture is this, that God has a plan and a purpose. That that purpose is both to invite those who hear the invitation to come and to drink, to be spiritually satisfied and fed. Come to me all who are thirsty. It is also to understand that we are not only saved from God's righteous condemnation, we are saved for a glorious future. And that it is God's word that both informs us of that and will bring it about. For his word will accomplish his purpose. A future to look forward to is how Isaiah finishes this chapter. Friends, these are great words. We are going to read them to one another. Elaine read them nicely to all of us. I want us just to take these last two verses, verse 12 and verse 13. Now, if you're willing to do this, um, all those on this side of the church will read verse 12 to you lot. Will you please pay attention and listen? All right? And then all on this side of the church will read verse 13 to all of you in order to help us go out with joy. Are we all right? And then I will lead us in a prayer. Right. Those on my left, on your marks, get set, go. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst the song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hand. This side. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for this marvelous vision. The idea of your name being honored and held in renown. That name to which every knee shall bow. And the idea that that will be an everlasting sign that will endure forever. And so almighty and everlasting God, ruler of all things, in heaven and on earth. In your mercy, hear the prayers of your people and grant to us your peace and joy throughout our lives, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.